Coming up right now, the newest episode from Carr, Gwyn, and Ode on Three Pagans and a Cat. Hey folks, CJ Grimm here from Poking Dead Things. It's a hard job doing what we do, and it can get kind of gross. We know that you work hard too, so I'm here to tell you that at the end of a hard day, nothing beats a hot bath and a cold beer. So treat yourself right, head to Twisted Willow Soap Company, and indulge in a bath bomb with your favorite six-pack. Remember, the only girly thing about a bath bomb are the sounds you're going to make in excitement. Twisted Willow Soap Company. Body. Mind. Soul. Brander af brandy, bren uns brun in air, funi quekesk af funa. Mother af mani, weather af mali kudar, entil delsker af dul. Kindling kindles kindling, and burns until wholly consumed, the flame ignited by a spark. Between one person and another passes the opportunity to benefit from experience, and nonsense only grows in isolation. Welcome to Heathenry, the 81st episode of Three Pagans and a Cat. Our opening today is courtesy of an anonymous, at least 13th century poet, translated by Douglas Dutton. You may call me Ode. You can call me Carr. I'm Ode's father. And we're missing somebody. Yeah. Where the hell's Gwen? <laughs> I don't know, but we can't complete our opening, so I guess we just have to stall here forever. <laughs> yep. Gwen is at Pantheacon, having a great time without us. Carr and I are here. Preparing, Packing. preparing to move at the end of the month. Yep. And in between there, we will be at convocation. Correct. Yes. So let's start with our housekeeping. Do we have any new patrons? We do. We have two new patrons. It's Coney Briggs and Christian Villegas. Welcome to our new patrons. Yes. There is a little more housekeeping. First of all, we're going to be at convocation next right. week. Right. Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday Sunday. Sunday. Yep. So it's all four of those days of convocation. We are going to be doing some kind of three-pack Hang out, get together one night. Mm-hmm. If you're coming to convocation, keep an eye on the Facebook group because we will be posting all of that information just to you guys. Yep. And one more piece of housekeeping. Next Saturday, we're going to be at convocation. We will be doing a live, live recording, pro- recording from convocation. From convocation yep. where we're going to talk about the stuff that we are doing at convocation. So it'll be our usual time. Yep. Probably, assuming Ish, yeah. nothing goes wrong that we're doing the live from convocation recording. Then the following Saturday on the 29th, which is the last day of February, we will be doing hopefully a Dear Three Pack open live recording where everyone's going to be invited to the voice channel and it's going to be... Your questions. Exactly. We're asking you all to send in questions that you have for us. And you can send those to car at the number three, pagansandacat.com. Right. And those can be any kind of questions. They can be questions about past episodes. They can be... I've seen people occasionally ask questions on the Facebook group or in the Discord, and, like, I don't get around to answering them. So, like, if if you've asked a question and we've never gotten around to answering it, send it in, and we'll try to cover it then. Yep. But there's a chance that that episode will be delayed because we're moving that week. Right. So I don't know if the podcast studio will be set up in the new house by the 29th. Right. We're going to try to make that happen, but, like, getting the utilities switched over and getting everything set up is going to be an experience. Yes. It's going to be an experience. Getting cable turned on so we can actually have internet. God, I hope that doesn't take long. (laughs) 
So we're going to be hoping to do that on the 29th. If we don't, we will do it the next week, and I will rejigger the schedule. Yep. So. There you go. Okay. You all are house kept. Yes. Housekeeping is complete, aside from all the packing that I do have to do at some point. <laughs> because Gwen is not here, we're going to be doing the heathenry episode that you guys have been asking for, yep. uh, where I'm going to talk about heathenry, and Cars can ask questions. Because that's what I do. Yeah. Even when we do normal episodes, <laughs> that's just my job. Yeah. I am actually incredibly brilliant. I play dumb on the podcast. This <laughs> <laughs> I get laughed at. Okay, great. I guess the basics of heathenry, which I've probably talked about before on the podcast, but the basics of heathenry is that it's a either reconstructionist or revivalist religion that is focused on recreating the traditions and religious practices of ancient Germanic peoples. That includes ancient Germany. It includes Anglo-Saxon, because that Anglo-Saxon area uh, had a lot of German descent. Yep. Uh, it includes the Old Norse. And, in fact, Old Norse, I think, probably is the most widespread right. version of heathenry. And that's the sort of heathenry that I personally subscribe to. But there are people who do... Anglo-Saxon heathenry or Germanic heathenry, and they'll use different words for things. They might worship slightly different gods. Uh, a lot of the same principles will remain consistent. American heathenry, which is what I practice because I'm an American, is a little bit of a mixed bag. So most American heathens are worshiping Norse deities, but will also like do sumbel. And Sumbel is an Anglo-Saxon tradition that has just sort of been folded into the newly created modern heathenry. So that's basically what heathenry is. And there's no requirement for heathenry to be a magical tradition. Lots of people don't have a magical practice in their in their heathen tradition. Right. It's, but you do. I do. Yep. Magic in heathenry is in sort of a complicated position because we don't have a lot of evidence for the magic that the ancient heathens actually did. Sure, yeah. So a lot of it is modern and recreated, or it pulls from other magical traditions. Right. Then on top of doing our approximation of heathen magic, right, I also do, like, just standard witchcraft that I learned from Gwyn. Right. So I have a very eclectic magical practice. Right. Sort of bolted onto my healing ring. Right. Finn Odinson is a satyr, and that is the worship of the Aesir and the Vanir. That's true. Technically, Asatru means true to the Aesir, sort of. That's not actually good Old Norse, but that's what it's intended to mean. In America... Asatru has a slightly different connotation than it does in Europe. In Europe, Asatru is, it's a religion, like it's a recognized religion in Iceland where it's been revived very strongly. Right. And it doesn't have, like that's what most people who are heathens in Europe are, they're Asatru. Right. In America, the term Asatru sometimes has associations with some of the bad heathen organizations. Sure. Like the Asatru Folk Assembly. Yep. And so there are some people who prefer to avoid the term Asatru. There are racists, says Rabbit. Yes, correct. There are groups like the Asatru community, I believe, uh, TAC, that are trying to sort of pull, reclaim that reclaim term. Reclaim the term, yep. And that are explicitly not racist. Right. So, so there are two sort of branches in American heathenry. They are the folkish and the universalists. 
The folkish are the heathens who are the racist ones. Right. Who say that you can only be heathen if you are white. Pure. Pure white. Blood. Yes. Right, yeah. You and <laughs> well what they'll say is that you should have Northern European ancestry. But in practice, all they will look at is, are you white? Right. So, there's that. I personally feel that, like, hypothetically, they could have a leg to stand on. Like, not a good leg, but a leg to stand on with, like, oh, well, it was the religion of the Germanic people, so you should have some German descent to practice it, right? Like, I would think that was a bad stance, but I could see where they would get there. But that's not what they actually do in practice. What they do in practice is, are you white? Then you can be a Sadra. And that's as far as they go. Like, they don't make you do any genealogy research or anything. I was going to say, because I look Uh as white as can be, but I know I have African-American ancestry in my family. And and, uh, so do I. uh, (laughs) Right, from from both both sides. sides. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I'm extremely white. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) The palest of the palest. Um, the palest of the palest people. So whiteness is a social construct, which is trash nonsense. Anyway, so that's why there's some, you'll see some reluctance in certain communities to use the term Asatru. Right. Because it's, in America, it's tied to those organizations. And Finn is a part of the TAC. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Finn is a, is a member of the Asatru, the Asatru community, yeah. TAC. Uh, and they did create a, a group called Shield Wall, which attempts to identify and block racism in the community. Gotcha. So that's a good initiative that I support. That said, there are a few principles that are sort of widespread in healery that I figured I could talk about. Sure. So I think the thing most people know about healery is they know that there's Yggdrasil, which is the world tree. Mm-hmm. Slightly fewer people know about the Well of Urther which is sort of the well of fate at the roots of Yggdrasil that feeds the the world tree. And then the water from the well of Birder, you know, goes up the branches and then it feeds the tree and then it drips down from the leaves back into the well and it creates this whole cycle of fate and destiny. And in the branches of Yggdrasil are the nine worlds. And the nine worlds are not organized. There's not like a hierarchical system. Or if there was, we don't know what it is. You'll sometimes see the nine worlds arranged in, like, a hierarchy of whatever people think is sort of, like, best to worst. Right. We don't actually have, like, a textual reference for any organizational system that they may have had for these. But the nine worlds are Midgard, which is the world of humans, which was made out of the corpse of Emil, who was the first giant born in Gerungagap, which is the primordial void from the intermingling of fire and ice from the primordial world of Niflheim, which is the world of ice, mm-hmm. and Muspelheim, which is the world of fire. Okay. So those worlds existed in Gerungagap, the void, and they gradually drew, drew closer together and... Where the fire melted the ice, Ymir grew out of the result. Gotcha. Later, many giants were born from Ymir, and then Athundla, the cosmic cow who just lives in Gunungagap for some reason, licked the salt from the ice that had also dripped from Niflheim and uncovered Buri, who is the father of the gods, and at some point Odin was born, and he and his brothers killed Ymir, and they made Midgard. And that's how Midgard came to be. Okay. 
That's Norse cosmology for you. <laughs> um, Niflheim, Muspelheim, Midgard. There are also Alfheim and Svartalheim, which are the worlds of the elves and the dwarves, respectively. The elves and the dwarves were not what you think they are, probably. So the elves were just sort of luminous beings, and the dwarves were dark beings who had, like, a subterranean society in Svartalheim. The elves had some kind of relationship to the Vanir and to humans. It's not clear what the relationship was exactly, except we know that elves could make you sick or they could heal you. So they had some sort of relationship to health and well-being. Gotcha. And the dwarves were craftsmen, so they created a lot of especially important items among the gods. Okay. And there was also a situation where sometimes dead humans, so ancestors, were described as becoming elves. Hmm. It is not clear what that process was. Gotcha. And then there are four more worlds. So the three worlds where people sort of live and actively do things are Asgard, Vanaheim, and Jotunheim, which are the homes of the Aesir, the Vanir, and the Jotunar, respectively. The Aesir are usually considered the gods of civilization. So that includes Odin and Tyr and various other gods, Frigga, many of their children, etc. Right. The Vanir were generally considered the gods of civilized nature, so agriculture, nature that had been put to human purpose. Gotcha. Friendly nature. And so that included gods like Freya and Freyr and their father Njörður. We don't know actually who among the gods were Vanir. It's not super clear because at some stage there was a war between the Aesir and the Vanir. And the Aesir won that war and took hostages. So Freya, Freyr, and Njordur were hostages from the Vanir. Okay. And they exchanged hostages with the Vanir, so they exchanged Mimir and Hunir. And Hunir was slain by the Vanir for reasons, and Mimir had his head cut off and sent back, and Odin threw it into the well so that it could do prophecies for him, because that's just how the Norse are. So negotiations broke down somewhat with the Vanir, even after the end of the war. But so we don't, so, so some people will say that like Sif was probably a Vanir, but that's not attested anywhere. That's gotcha. UPG basically. And then the Jotnar, the giants, are the forces conventionally of destructive nature or dangerous nature. The things that were most likely to be, they're usually described as chaos. Right, okay. the, for, the forces of chaos were the Jotnar and the forces of order were the Aesir and the Vanir. And Norse cosmology has these forces kind of constantly negotiating space from each other. Okay. And then there's one more world, which is Hell, and that's the land of the dead. And that is the name both of the land of the dead and of the goddess who is in charge of the land of the dead. So it is both her name and the name of that world. Sometimes you'll see people call it Helheim, but that's sort of a modern construction of it as an attempt to sort of separate them. In practice, in the text, it was called hell. Gotcha. So I have a question. Okay. Why are there only three worlds that don't end in the word Heim? So hell doesn't end in the word Heim because it was used interchangeably as her name and as the place. Okay. Midgard and Asgard, the guard part, Mm -hmm. means garden or enclosure. Okay. And Midgard and Asgard were both encircled by walls. 
the sea surrounding Midgard is patrolled by or bounded by Jormungandr, which is one of Loki's children, which is a giant sea serpent. And Asgard, the realm of the Aesir, there is a whole story about building a special wall around it, also involving Loki, actually. So that's just why the gotcha. why the breakdown is there, just because these are like walled <laughs> fortress worlds, essentially. Gotcha. As opposed to the other worlds, which are less contained. I do. Yeah. I, I've always <laughs> wondered that, so now I at least have some idea. Yeah. I don't know that I completely understand it. So because we only have a couple of sources for Norse mythology, we've got the Poetic Edda, the Prose Edda, and a little bit from Saxo Grammaticus's Gesta Denorum. <laughs> Gesta Denorum is a Danish set of stories about the Norse gods, but they've been ephemerized, so they've been recontextualized as heroic humans. Gotcha. So the Poetic Edda, which is older, the Prose Edda, which is derived from, we think, the Poetic Edda, okay. and the Gesta Denorum. And that's kind of it in terms of... Aren't poetry and prose the same thing? No. Okay. Poetry is a poem. Okay. Prose is, is a, a non-poem. <laughs> okay. Prose is explicitly a non-poem. It's anything with paragraphs. Ah, okay. Yeah. Thanks to our Tiger Nicole for introducing us to the Shamanic Vine, a metaphysical store in Kalamazoo, Michigan, offering crystals, aromatherapy, herbal supplies, books, and more. Find them online at shamansvine.com. So there aren't a lot of clear delineations between these. Um, there, are, So the worlds are clearly separated, right? right. They're in the, tr- in the branches of Yggdrasil. There's some speculation that, that maybe they overlap. Like, they aren't separate so much, like, in terms of like location, so much as like accessibility, right. if that makes sense. But the classes of peoples mm-hmm. in Norse mythology are very muddy. So we talked about the elves earlier and how like sometimes dead humans could become elves, maybe somehow. Right. That's really really common in in the Norse system. As an example, Freyr, the god, yeah. is considered an Aesir. Because he was adopted by them okay. as a hostage. Seems like something they do a lot. Mm-hmm. He is by birth a Vanir. Okay. So that's the tribe of the gods that he came from originally. Right. He is the ruler of Alfheim, which is the world of the elves. Okay. It's not clear why. That's just the thing that he's in charge of. And he is married to a giant, Gerder. Okay. So he like, fits into all four of those categories right. sort of simultaneously. And that's really common. Like, Thor is the child of Odin mm-hmm. and, and Jord. Odin is an Aesir. Jord is Jotun. So Thor is half Aesir, half Jotun. He's considered an Aesir. Okay. And he is married to Sif, who is considered an Aesir, but UPG might be a Vanir because she has agricultural ties. Gotcha. Which is more common of the Vanir than the Aesir. Interesting. Yeah. So although people like to talk about Norse culture as if it was very isolationist, it was in practice extremely, it, it had really open opportunities for connection, right? Gotcha. So, like, there were in-groups and out-groups, but wasn't static the way we think of those things as being now. Right. You could move through those those different classes of people. You could belong to different groups, and even to groups that were 
at war with each other. So, like, the Jotun and the Aesir are sort of constantly in this struggle right. between chaos and order. But, like, Skavi is a Jotun, but she has a place among the Aesir because she marries Njord of Vanir, who was adopted by the Aesir as a hostage. Wow. This is why racism and heathenry is nonsense. Right. <laughs> Basically. So there's a couple of questions here you ought to read, starting okay. like the fourth one up. Cory Kiwi asks, would that be similar to deification? I assume you're asking about the transition from dead human to elf, maybe? That's not clear, because we don't know what that process is. What we know is that the Norse would worship their ancestors at the Barrows, right? Which is where they were buried. But sometimes they would also propitiate them the same way that they would honor elves. And sometimes a few hundred years down the line, they would describe that ancestor as an elf, which is the Norse word for elf. Gotcha. So we don't know what that process was or what it looked like. All we know is that there was some kind of connection or overlap there where it was possible, but we don't know how or why or what made some people maybe become elves. Gotcha. Finn says, I've always felt Sif is Vanir, and Elfort J says Sif is certainly active in Sither. I don't know of any connection between Sif and Sither, Personally, the UPG that she is Vanir is very, very widespread. Uh, that's very common. But I have not heard of any connection between Sif and Sither. I have a question. And, okay. and Finn just posted. So connection between uh, worlds is the Bifrost, uh-huh. which connects Midgard to Asgard. Right. And I guess other worlds as well, right? So the Bifrost <laughs> is the Rainbow Bridge. Right. And that's a, hypothetically, cosmologically, a literal bridge mm-hmm. that connects Midgard and Asgard. Not explicitly other worlds as well, okay. but in practice, that's how most people use it today. Right. Now, keep in mind, my only heathen anything mm-hmm. has been watching Marvel movies yeah. and reading Marvel comics. Yeah. So I'm, a, <laughs> I'm probably slightly out of touch. But my question is, if they're all in the same tree... Right. Why is the Bifrost even needed? Because they're in different branches. Okay. But we've seen, like, like Loki, for instance. Right. At least from where I'm getting right, it from right. Marvel movies, right. was taken from the Land of the Giants. Right? Okay. Yep. To Asgard. Right. Right? But there was no, there's no Bifrost there, right? So it's just... Well, in the Marvel movies, the there was. Well, yes, but... <laughs> as far as we can tell... Travel between the various worlds, like, was not meaningfully difficult. Okay. At least cosmologically. Sometimes, right? Like, sometimes it was described as, like, there was a great journey. It was very difficult. And sometimes it's described as, like, only Sleipnir can make the ride to hell. But sometimes Thor and Loki just go to Jotunheim to yell at a giant. Okay. And it's easy. Like... It just seems weird. Like, there's this... It's like going into a city and, like, you have to take the bus everywhere. But this one place has a, you know, a subway. Just one subway right, connecting just one point subway, A and point B. Right, exactly. Part of that might be that Asgard and Midgard were in a special relationship to each other, right? Midgard was created by the Aesir. Right. That's not the case for the other worlds. Okay, so really Midgard is... Midgard, does it even fall into the nine worlds then? It, it does, it? but because it, it, it exists on the world tree, but... It's like a, it's sort of like a vassal state 
of Asgard, right? Okay. Odin and his brothers created Midgard for reasons that they don't explain. <laughs> and then also created some humans to populate it. And then just said, okay, well, we'll just leave this here. <laughs> All right. And because we've made this, we'll be responsible for it, right? For, like, making sure that the giants don't wreck shop. Okay. So that's the that's why there's a relationship between Asgard and Midgard, is that Midgard wouldn't exist unless Odin and two brothers, either Vili and Ve or Honi or Lothar, depending on which source you check, created it. Okay. But, like, Nibelheim and, and Muspelheim existed before... Ymir did. And Ymir was the first being who wasn't a cosmic cow. So what you're telling me is stick with the Marvel adaptations and I'll be okay. No. Because otherwise I'll be really confused. What I'm telling you is mythology is complicated. And part of that that is because we're getting these from sources that came from very different time periods. Right. And from different locations. Right. So like, Scandinavia isn't one whole connected space. Right. It's a bunch of islands. Right. And they sometimes communicated with each other, like they communicated enough with each other that they were worshipping the same gods, but they were worshipping them in different ways. Gotcha. Iceland and Denmark had different, they emphasized different gods. They had different ways of practicing cultists. They had different priorities. Right. And so different mythologies built up. So we as heathens now are trying to sort of piece together a coherent framework out of these these pieces that really don't even go to the same puzzles, right? right? They go to puzzles that look similar, like they're both puzzles where the picture should, at the end of the day, be a boat, but they're maybe not the same boat. And so the puzzle pieces don't fit perfectly. Right. That's why you find a lot of these inconsistencies and irregularities. Part of that is just that mythologies are like that. Like, that's just how mythologies evolve. If you're, like, Christianity has a specific book. Right. And even in that, there are four different accounts of Jesus Christ's life. Right. Which, which have variances. And, that, that and you have the to, ones that they didn't put in. Exactly. And, and so you have to account for those. It's that, but like times a thousand in heathenry, because we have fewer sources with right. wider disparities. And we're having to... And more gods. And more gods. Right. And we're having to try and reconcile those differences and those disparities while knowing that we're missing, like, at least 70% of the pieces. Right. So we're trying to put together one puzzle out of at least three puzzles, all of which we only have about 10% of the pieces for. That's why it's confusing. If, if you could only just do the edges... Maybe the rest of it would just fill in. Exactly. But we don't even have that. We've got, like, a little bit of the middle from Puzzle 1. Right. And, like, a corner from Puzzle 2. And a random scattering of some edges and some middle pieces from Puzzle 3. Gotcha. And trying to make something coherent. And it's just... Which is why I say I'm a syncretic heathen. Because to fill in those missing pieces, we're gonna have to find some more puzzles. Right. Right, yeah. Or make new Possible. pieces. Right, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. like if you if you can put together the bits you have and see the approximation of a, of a picture. Maybe not the original picture, but something that's, you know, pretty. Right. Something that's attractive enough and that approximately resembles what you think the original picture might have looked like. More specifically, what you imagine that picture would have looked like if it had been made of all three puzzles. And see, the biggest problem with this is going to be is that we're going to find out the original painter was somebody like Picasso. And so it was all screwed up to begin, to begin with. Right. Well, and that's the other thing, is we're taking these from different cultures. Right. And we're taking them from different time periods. 
and all the authors are anonymous. Right. We don't know any of these people were. Right. We don't know who wrote any of the Prosetta. None of that has a name, a name or multiple names attached to it. We don't know who wrote any pieces of those. We think some of them are from as early as the 9th century, and some of them could have been written in the 13th century when it was found. Gotcha. All compiled together. We have no idea. Right. It's impossible to know who was writing the, the sources we have, except for, like, Gesta Denorum, Saxo Grammaticus, we know he wrote that. Right. Right. Snorri Sterlingson, we're reasonably confident he wrote the prose edda. But we don't know what his sources were. Right. Was he writing from the, from a copy of the Codex Regis? Or was he writing from other oral versions of that? Right. Right. Or, or what? Like, we have no idea. Gotcha. So. There's a lot of guesswork in heathenry and in the mythology. Yeah, Rabbit says, if you try to make sense of it, the only thing you're going to get is a headache. And that's true. That's kind of um, where I'm at, Rabbit. If you if you try to make it make logical sense, it's not going to. Right. If it ever made logical sense, we are missing the pieces we need for it to make logical sense now. And part of it is that I suspect it made more sense to people with a different framework than we have. Okay. Right? So, like, the Old Norse lived in Scandinavia, in a place that was very, very cold and very, very dark for, like, half the year. Mm -hmm. They had a tribal society, so they had, like, they would live in small groups of, like, two to five homes. That was, like, the size of a community. Right. And you were reliant on all the people in that community to help each other survive. Right. So they had really strong rule systems, really strong ethical systems, and if you broke those, you were declared nothing, you were cast out and denied uh, any assistance because you had proven dangerous to the group and the group could no longer support you, right? So, like, the structure of that culture would have affected the way they understood these mythologies. The same way the structure of our culture affects the way we understand these mythologies. So we're coming at it from necessarily different viewpoints. Right. Things that the old Norse would have considered unacceptable like, let's just talk about it. There's a concept in Old Norse called Arger, and to be called Ergi was the greatest insult. The law on the books was that if you called, it, it was specifically a charge that could be applied to a man, if you called a man Ergi, and he did not immediately try to kill you, which was his right, if you had just called him Ergi, okay. If he didn't immediately try to kill you, he was accepting that charge and was cowardly and officially Ergi. So, like, and Ergi was unmanliness. Gotcha. And it was associated with homosexual sex. Okay. So that was a charge to the Old Norse that was extremely bad. Right. And... You see it leveled at Loki and at Odin uh, during the Locusena, and that's a big deal when it happens there. Right. But we, reading it today, from a time where homosexuality is fine, and if you disagree, stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's not a, like a big deal. Other than I know it's an insult. Right. Like so it, if you ever call me that, I, I should try to kill you. Uh, yeah, according to Old Norse law, yes. <laughs> okay. um, that would be the correct response. <laughs> but that tells you something about the culture, right? Right, yeah, yep. That's the context in which these myths were originally designed. So not only are we building one puzzle out of three puzzles, and we only have 30% of the pieces, 
to build a puzzle. We're we're the wrong people to be building it, basically. Right. They were puzzles designed for other people. Okay. And even if we had the full puzzles, we wouldn't understand the image they made. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So we're trying to take those puzzles of things we don't and can't fully relate to and make something we can relate to out of those pieces. So if we don't borrow pieces from other puzzles and start making some pieces, we are never going to get anywhere. Yeah. In fact, it says, just accept chaos. Yeah. And the game of telephone gets played with the nets. Yep. Things change with each person hearing it. Yep. So. And so, like, to me, it makes sense that Midgard and Asgard have this special relationship because Midgard was created by the Aesir. Right. Right? But that's not spelled out anywhere. Right. Like, it's spelled out that that's how Midgard was created. You know, they have the Bifrost and, and the Aesir, like, keep an eye on Midgard and, you know, occasionally the gods visit Midgard. And so we see these things happen. Right. But no one, it's like, there's not a textual reference that says Midgard and Asgard have a unique relationship between the worlds. That's just something that makes sense to me looking at these puzzle pieces. Gotcha. And that's a lot of what heathenry is, honestly. There's an astonishing amount of UPG in heathenry because there kind of has to be. Yeah. To create something functional. Finn said, basically, we're trying to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. Yeah, pretty much. And, like, one live chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Who's running around? Uh Uh-huh. There are some some other concepts in heathenry that are sort of widespread that I figure I should cover. Sure. Because they sometimes cause confusion. So I'm going to just clarify them now. First, you will hear about the nine noble virtues. I do not use those. Those were created in the 1970s by, well, it's not clear. There are like three or four possible sources for the Nine Noble Virtues. And at a glance, they're nothing bad. There's stuff like industriousness and honor and things like that. But they were, whoever did create them, they were created at a time when modern American heathenry was very racist. Okay. It was folkish. It was all folkish at that time. The Nine Noble Virtues, whichever of these people who created them, were created in a folkish system. So they have those fingerprints, for lack of a better term. And while there's nothing, like, specifically wrong with the Nine Noble Virtues, knowing where they come from, I can kind of see... I can see how they would be used for evil, for lack of a, of a better way to put it. So I choose not to use those because they're not, they don't have an ancient source anyway. So like I can throw them out with no, no difficulty. They go back to the 1970s maximum. You can join our Tiger or Laura Driver with the music of Aqua Girl. Aqua Girl is an indie pop musician with a very chill, listenable synth tone married to lyrics that are by turns hopeful and honest. All of Aqua Girl's tracks have their charms, but I'd suggest Winter Ritual, a mellow poppy instrumental track off of Aqua Girl's new EP, How to Disappear, tutorial. You can find Aqua Girl at aqua-girl.bandcamp.com. says, I actually enjoy Aqua Girl. 
And so do I. So do I, yeah. Aqua Girl <laughs> is really good. Yeah. Some other concepts in healery, we talk about the gift cycle. Sometimes you'll see it called Gebo, because that's the rune that means gift. In modern society, we have a certain understanding of debt, right? And the idea is that if you owe something to someone, you have to pay them back. Right. Right, and then the debt is gone. Yep. You've canceled it out. In heathenry, debt works differently, because it is a gift cycle. And the okay. idea is that it's a loop that should just sort of continue growing. Okay. Um, if I give you a gift... Mm-hmm. The idea is that you should then give me a gift of greater value than the gift that I gave to you. And then the debt is transferred between us. Okay. And then I have to give you a gift of greater value than the one you just gave to me. And then you have to give me a gift of greater value than the one you, I just gave to you. And so on and so on forever and ever. Okay. That doesn't mean monetary value necessarily. And gifts don't have to be things. Gifts could be time spent together or help with something, or, you know, whatever. Right. But it's about creating a reciprocal relationship where you are constantly helping each other. Okay. So the debt is never canceled out. Mm-hmm. The debt is only passed. passed between you so that one person is always receiving and the other person is always giving. Interesting. So debt isn't a bad thing in heathenry. To be in debt just means you have an opportunity now to give a greater gift. That is sort of related to the concept of frith. So frith is a sort of foundational concept in heathenry, which is mm, reciprocal non-harm. It's sometimes described as like peace or unity. It's a community value. Okay. And it is a, a relationship between individuals who share uh, an in-and-guard relationship. So in-and-guard and outer-guard are modern explanations for that sort of two-to-five-person household, village, community right. idea, where the idea is that your in-and-guard is the people you are very close to with whom you have frith, and the outer-guard are the people you are less close to with whom you may not have frith. Okay. Frith is necessarily reciprocal, so you cannot have frith with someone who does not have frith with you. And it is not always explicitly, but an implied vow not to hurt each other. Okay. In ancient times, that meant physically. Like, that meant, like, someone with whom you keep frith, I will not kill you or do you physical harm. Because that was the world they lived in. (laughs) So physical harm was a real problem. Right. In modern society... Frith has been expanded to include social harm and emotional harm and things like that. Okay. More abstract forms of harm because sure. we now recognize that those forms of harm are, are just as powerful. Exactly, are, yeah. are equally damaging. Yeah. So if you are in frith with someone, you should be able to have like arguments with each other without doing each other harm. At the end of that argument, you should still be in frith. Right. Someone who does harm to a person with whom they have frith is called a frith breaker and is removed from the community. Okay. So is shunned. This, and so sometimes you'll see people use frith as a shield against consequences. So you'll see people claiming, well, my community can't punish me for doing this because I have frith. I'm protected by frith. You gotcha. can't harm me. But, Almost certainly, if this person has done something that requires punishment or requires them to be removed from the community, they've broken frith in some way. They've caused harm of some kind. 
So that's an important concept to understand, I think, is that thrift is not one unidirectional. It's okay. reciprocal. If the other person causes harm inside the community, they're a thrift breaker, and it is acceptable to remove them from the community. And in fact, that is the right response. Because then keeping them in the community right. spreads that broken thrift. By the way, thrift breaker would be a great name for a hardcore song. Yes, it would. Yeah. There are three concepts which are very difficult for us to understand from heathenry. They're difficult to understand if you're in heathenry, and they're especially difficult to understand outside of heathenry. So, so what you're saying is I'm not going to understand. So I'm going right, to gotcha. try to describe them very <clears throat> simply. So the concepts are Orlog, Weird, and Luck. Orlog is the things that you were born with. It's called the first law, or what is laid down first. Okay. And this defines sort of the situation into which you're born. It's the earliest weave of your life. Okay. It's what the norms set down for you when you're born. It's your parents. It's your anything you inherited. Um, so any traits or qualities that you inherited through your bloodline. It's your socioeconomic status when you're born. It's the location you're born in. It's the gender you will be assigned. It's your sexuality. It's all that stuff. It's all okay. the stuff that you're born with. Whatever is set down for you at the moment that you're born, that's your orlog. That's your starting point. Okay. Your orlog cannot be changed because it exists. And this is where we sort of get into the Norse concept of time. The Norse didn't really do past, present, future. The Norse did past and not the past. Okay. Past was stuff that you couldn't do anything about because it had already happened. Orlog is in the past. You can't do anything about it. It happened. Okay. Not past which encompasses what we would sort of consider the present and the future, is stuff you still have some control over. Things you are doing or can do. That could also relate to something in the past that you could fix. No, because that thing in the past still happened. So it's a, that's a now unchangeable point. That broken thing was broken. If you fix it in the not past, that's fine. Now you have a fixed thing. But you'll never have a non-broken thing. Does that make sense? Yes. You'll have the thing, right. but it'll be fixed instead of unbroken. Gotcha. And that's it, like that quality of fixed versus unbroken is distinct in in the Norse concept of time. Gotcha. So your orlog is stuff that's set <clears throat> down when you're born that you have zero control over. That doesn't mean that your orlog is necessarily right or that you're stuck there forever. So the gender that you're assigned might be wrong. Right. And in the not past, you can change it. You can fix it. Right. And then you will have a fixed gender. Your socioeconomic status might change. Right. If you're born in poverty, you can become rich. Sure. In the not past. But you will always have been born in poverty. And so those things will always influence you in some way. Okay. Because then in the not past, what you've done is overcome your Orlog. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So if Orlog is the past... Weird is the not past. Okay. Weird is fate. It is both the tapestry of your life and of reality, and it is the action of the threads in that tapestry. So weird is both the things that happen to you, so the things that other people do around you, and natural occurrences, and the actions of the gods, and things like that. Right. And it is your will acting on the threats. Okay. So, 
Weird is the not past. It is the things over which you have some control. Okay. However, because weird is part of a whole tapestry of other people's weird all acting together, you are never in complete control of your weird. Interesting. So everybody's tapestry is one really it's big tapestry. all one tapestry. Everything Perfect. is interconnected. Interesting. Heathenry really rejects individualism. Heathenry is collectivist. It's about the group. Interesting. And about yeah. your action in the group, rather <laughs> than your action as an individual. Gotcha. Because no man is an island, essentially. Because in the culture of the ancient Norse, you couldn't survive in ancient Scandinavia solo, long term. You needed your community. And, right. and that's where a lot of these concepts come from, is your connectedness to your community. So you have some control over your weird, but not total control over your weird. You have some control of your, over your fate, but not total control over your fate. Things that have been decided for you by the gods, or by things that were established in your Orlog that you haven't changed, or by the actions of people around you, those things may not be completely in your control. All so, you can do is manipulate the things that are in your control and hope that you pull enough threads the way you want that you get where you're intending to go. Hey, for instance, mm-hmm. say you're going to fix something that is wrong in your world, okay. right? And so you fix it in your weird. Mm-hmm. Well, could that then screw up somebody else's weird because it's all interconnected? Yeah. Okay. It may interfere in mm-hmm. someone's weird in ways you don't expect mm-hmm. or in ways you'll never know. Right. Yeah. That changes how you... It changes how you do everything. <laughs> yeah, it changes how you do everything because you're now thinking as... As part of the collection. It's almost like the board. Kind of, yeah. really, really geeky yeah. at this um, point. But yeah, yeah you, know, like, you have to think about not just how your actions affect you, right. but how your action, actions affect everyone around you. Right. So, like, my Orlog is that I was assigned female at birth. Right. My weird is that I am non-binary, so I am fixing my gender designation. Right. Because I'm non-binary and I'm openly non-binary, that part of my weird, which is a continual thing I'm constantly adjusting, affects the weird of other people who learn that I'm non-binary and that affects their life in some way. Right. Maybe they didn't, like, for a long time, I didn't know that I could be non-binary. Right. Maybe the fact that I am openly non-binary is someone else's first exposure to the concept of being non-binary. Right. That changes their weird. Right. So it's not always bad how you change someone else's weird. Right. It could be good as well. Right. But or it could be... Non-consequential, but still change their opinion. Exactly. Weird is the things you have some control over and your connectedness to the rest of reality. Right. And to all the people in it. Because everyone is a tapestry, and because all the threads are connected to each other, it's impossible to know to what extent you adjust the whole flow of the tapestry, because you can only see your part of it. Interesting. The other concept that is difficult to understand from human rate is luck which is different from the modern English understanding of luck. Most of the time when people talk about luck, now they're talking about chance, mm-hmm. um, like a roll of the dice. Right. Randomness. Yes, Rochambeau. Yeah. Luck in heathenry is a quality and a, almost a substance, like a metaphysical substance that you possess. Some of it is hereditary, so you're born with a certain amount of luck. 
mm-hmm. based on the luck of your parents and your ancestors. Kind of like a D&D character. Right. You get this much luck, now let's see what you can do. Exactly, with it. exactly. Yeah. So you're born with a certain amount of luck, <laughs> and you can kind of accrue luck or acquire luck. Your skills contribute to your luck. Your physical qualities contribute to your luck. Your intelligence contributes to your luck. Your knowledge contributes to your luck, separate from your intelligence. Your wisdom contributes to your luck, separate from both of those. The things you're naturally good at contribute to your luck. And you can be gifted luck. So someone who has a great supply of luck may give to you some of his to carry forward to accomplish your tasks with, with greater alacrity and skill, right? Right. So that would be where phrases like good luck come from. It would okay. be like, have some of my luck. Right. Take it with you. Physically use it to accomplish this thing. There was a tradition in Scandinavia, and we've seen, we see this in some of the sagas, of great kings who have great stores of luck because they're kings, and they wouldn't be in this position if they didn't have strong luck. Right. Giving luck to heroes to accomplish a task. Interesting. And so it's not just the hero who accomplishes the task. It's the hero and the king's luck. Gotcha. So the king in some way contributes to that because his luck is part of that process. Going back to D&D. Uh-huh. Because yeah, yeah. Gary Gynax, mm-hmm. I swear, stole everything in D&D <laughs> from heathenry. Well, because he probably you, did take a lot of things from Tolkien, who took a lot of things from the ancient arts. Yeah, so, I mean, as, as you know, I'm starting to look all the stuff you're saying, mm-hmm. I'm like, that, this is basically how you build a D&D character. Mm-hmm. Like, this is this, and this is this, and that, you know. You have this amount of charisma, yep. this and, amount of intelligence, this amount of wisdom, and that affects your dice nice roll. It, but it's not even that. Like, mm-hmm. what I do affects the entire group of my campaign. So mm-hmm. now, I'm, now we're talking about weird. Yep. And shit that happened in the past. It really is in the past, you know, because yep. it's in the previous... And it was the previous session, and you yeah. can't change it anymore. Right, exactly. Yep. So, I mean, it's very, like... So now I actually understand heathenry more because I can think can about it. to d d yeah. Which <laughs> Whatever is, works. Which is scary, but... So there you all go. Let's play, D- play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and you'll understand. And you'll understand heathenry. <laughs> and if you don't play Dungeons and Dragons, you're Good screwed. Good those are the foundational concepts of heathenry that I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding. There are a few others. So, like, there's there's Uther, which is inspiration or divine madness. Oh, I like divine madness. Divine madness, mm-hmm. yeah. So, inspiration in heathenry was not the way we talk about being inspired now, where it's mm-hmm. this kind of milk toast, like, ooh, I'm feeling slightly more motivated than usual. <laughs> right. Inspiration, or Uther to the Old Norse, was an intense fervor, almost a possession, as if something else is driving you to accomplish the thing. And it could apply to art, or to scholarly work, or to battles, or to magic, or to love. It could apply to anything. Interesting. It was just this quality of divine madness, of being possessed by the need to do the thing. And that is... Connected to Odin. Odin dispensed Uther and was possessed by Uther many huh. times. And so he's, you sometimes see him described. He has some by names that refer to madness, both to battle frenzy and to uh, poetic madness and things like that. Gotcha. So that's a concept you'll see used sometimes. And it's important to understand that distinction because you'll sometimes see it translated as inspiration. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean 
the kind of inspiration right. that we're usually talking about in English. It, it means something much more intense than that. Gotcha. The other thing that I want to talk about a little bit, and it's this is sort of the right time to talk about it because we were just talking about Orlog Weird, is Sivir, which is a old, badly understood, maybe shamanic practice. It's best described, I think, as fate weaving. The idea with Sivir was that the vulva, or the seed worker, and it was, Sivir was associated explicitly with women, or with ergi men. So there was a, an element of sexual transgression to men who practiced Sivir, including Odin, okay. who learned it from Freya. And Sivir was the process of, we think, going into some kind of trance, they think that there was some relationship to a distaff or a spindle in there, like that was the tool that was used because okay. it was about weaving, and perceiving the the tapestry, the web of weird, and manipulating it like as weird instead of as the things that humans do. Hmm. So you could perceive weird, and therefore you had mm, better clarity on what was going to happen. Right because you could see the tapestry. And if you could manipulate those threads as threads, right, Mm -hmm. of existence, you could do very extreme forms of magic. Gotcha. In folktales, it could, like, change the weather or just kill people or that kind of a thing. Gotcha. We don't know really what Sivir looked like in detail, we don't have good descriptions of it. Modern Sivir is largely constructed out of uh, other shamanic practices. Okay. Sometimes you'll see people using things from the shamanic practices of the Sami, who are an indigenous people that were close to Scandinavia and that had some intermingling with Old Norse peoples. Okay. So it's possible. There's actually some scholarly debate that Sivir may have derived from originally Sami shamanic practices. Okay. So our Tiger R. Darren is offering intuitive readings and divinations with over a decade of experience working with spirit, tarot, runes, and tea leaves. Make an appointment for a reading with R. Darren. You can do that on Facebook or Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna spell this for you because it's the only way to get this yes. out. A-R-D-E-R-I-N a-U-G-U-R-I-E-S. Yeah, so uh, go to Facebook or Instagram right. for our Darren's divination uh, stuff. Yeah, our Darren auguries. Mm-hmm. There you go. And then I thought I would talk about some of the symbols of heathenry. Okay. Because some of them don't come from where you think they do. So Thor's hammer is a very common one. You see a lot of people wearing that as an amulet. Yep. Which so, is, I can't pronounce, what's it actually called? Mjolnir. That's it, I always yes. mispronounce that. It's it's pronounced Mjolnir, and it's thought to maybe mean lightning. Gotcha. So you'll sometimes see people wearing Mjolnir and Mjolnir, sort of the same way that Christians wear crosses. And we actually think that that started in Scandinavia at around the time that Christians were there wearing crosses. Gotcha. Because we don't have Those any... Those damn monks! Yeah. Because we don't have any evidence of it happening before that. 
Right. It's possible that people were wearing Thor's hammer before that as an amulet, but we don't have any archaeological Concrete evidence for that. Right, yeah. um, all we have evidence for is that at around the same time that monks were and Christians were there wearing crosses during conversion, Scandinavian pagans were also wearing Thor's hammer. Gotcha. So possible that this was kind of a response to... Sure. Same uh, reason why they have a calendar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the Romans had one, and by God... <laughs> um, yeah, so so people wearing Mjolnir now are actually hearkening back to at least conversion period Scandinavia when this was gotcha. done. So Thor's hammer did have qualities in the myth of consecration. Thor's sort of role in the cosmology is as a defender against chaos because he's constantly fighting giants. That's sort of his main job. Okay. Fighting giants and beating the shit out of giants is the thing Thor does the most. And so he is considered to be, he's often considered a defender of humanity, right? Because Midgard is sort of most at risk of incursions of chaos from the giants because it's the youngest world. Sure. And so Thor is sort of supposed to take care of it and make sure that chaos doesn't destroy everything. Sure. Uh, so his hammer is supposed to ha- have some of that power in it, essentially, to consecrate and to cast out chaos. So it was used in weddings to both uh, consecrate the marriage and to bestow fertility upon okay. the couple, because Thor had some fertility associations, because he was a god of thunder and storms, and the storms helped farmers Sure. Get yeah. good crops. Yep. So he has some fertility associations too. So he's used for that. And really big storms meant you stayed inside. Yeah. Because who knew what Thor was doing out there? Right. What giants were in the vicinity? Yep. It sort of represented order. So you sometimes see people today doing what's called a hammer rite when they cast circles at rituals, where okay. they'll essentially draw Thor's hammer in the air at the four quarters. And this is basically derived from Wicca and ceremonial magic. Gotcha. That's not a thing that they did. Something they did do in ye olden days was we know in Iceland there was a temple to Thor where they had a hammer that was supposed to represent Thor's hammer. Mm -hmm. And at certain rituals when they needed to sanctify the space, they would slam the hammer into a gong so that it made a sound like thunder. Ah. So... Personally, I think if you feel like you need to consecrate a space, you should get a pan from your kitchen and a hammer, and it should be a pan you don't care about too much. <laughs> <laughs> and you should just beat the shit out of the pan with a hammer. Or buy a gong. <laughs> or buy a gong, yes. So, And then I would have, like, a hammer that you designate as your mjolnir, and I would consecrate it for that purpose. That's how I would do it. Personally. On our new property, can we just have a gong that hangs, like, from one of the trees? Yes. And we can get a hammer. Yep, and yep we can, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I totally wanted to I'm do that. I'm fine with okay. that. I don't know how the neighbors will feel, and we may have to get some noise ordinances or something, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm fine with that. I like that better than a hammer right, because it's more traditional. Right. And we have so few references to what they did back in the day, right. that when we know the things right. they did back in the day, I want to do those things right. as much as possible. Yep. Where it's legal to do those things, you know, I'm not going to hang anyone in a bog, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it's legal to have a hammer and a gong. So. Right. so that's the most common, I think, widely known heathen symbol. Sure. The other one that's relatively well known is the Valknut, which is three interlocking triangles, and we actually don't know what that one's for. 
Gotcha. It's associated with Odin now because most of the time when we when we have visual evidence of it, it's around Odin or it's around other symbols of Odin. Okay. Odin has two wolves and two ravens, so sometimes we see like two wolves, two ravens, and a Volknut. And we're like, okay, these are probably all associated with Odin here. Right. That's a logical connection to make. But we don't actually know. We don't know that it's actually called the Volknut. We don't have any record of what it's called. Volknut is just what they started calling it. We don't know what it's supposed to represent. So there are two theories. One theory that makes sense to me and one theory that doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Um, I want to hear your theories because I have a theory. So the first theory is that the Volknut is supposed to represent the heart of a giant that Odin kills at one point. And... It's a really brief mention right. uh, of this giant and his heart, and it's not clear why that would show up everywhere. Right. So I don't think that's a theory that holds a lot of water. I can see why you think a Volknut kind of looks like maybe a stylized heart, but I don't think that's it. The other theory, and this is the one that makes more sense to me, is that it's supposed to represent a skein of wool. That it's okay. supposed to represent threads that Odin is weaving as he performs Siddur. Because sometimes it is actually seen on the end of a staff, mm-hmm. like a distaff. Okay. So that's a theory. And that's the one that makes the most sense to me personally. Can I give you a theory? Yes, give me a theory. Okay. So you have the Aesir, the Vanir, and the, what's the other one? The Jotunar. The Jotunar. Those are your three gods, right? Those are the three classes. Three, the three classes. main classes of gods. Right, yep. So that's three, that's three triangles. Mm-hmm. Each triangle has three points. Right. So three times three is nine, the nine worlds. Solved! <laughs> I just, it like, it came to me instantly. So. I don't know uh, if that's the original intended meaning, but it's a very good backtracing of it. Yeah. <laughs> it, li- it literally just popped in my head yeah. as you were talking about it. I was like, oh shit, I know what this means. But yeah, that, that's it wasn't, it wasn't. But it could be. Right? Like, it's plausible. Right. And none of our other theories have that much more evidence anyway, so. Then Carr coming up with it. Yeah, Finn says, damn it, Carr, but that is compelling. Yeah, it is. And like I said, we have no idea what the Vulcanite was originally supposed to be. I told you all I was smart at the beginning of this podcast. (laughs) It is. That sounds right. Yeah. It makes sense if you, if you lay it all out like that. Right. Yeah, so, uh, so I don't know whether that was the originally intended meaning, but that's a plausible interpretation of it, I think. And then it is associated, like I said, with Odin, because we see around Odin's representations of Odin and other symbols associated with Odin all the time. Perfect light bulb moment, says Selfie. The three brothers who made the human race. Yeah, there's also that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm using it now. Uh, You're welcome, Finn. There are a couple of other heathen symbols, but the other one I'm going to talk about is the Vegvisir, because that's, uh, I use the Vegvisir in a lot of places. Um, It's on my cat in the little icons that I made. (laughs) (laughs) Carl looks around like there's a what on the cat? (laughs) Um... So, but it's on the, the little cat icon that I made of myself, and, like, I draw a Vegvisir when I do certain kinds of divination. Right. Because the Vegvisir is, I call it the Wayfinder. It's a little, like, rune stave that kind of looks like a weird compass. It's got a bunch of branches coming off from it, and then uh, each one is slightly different. And it's from the 19th century, so it's actually really, really modern. Vegvisir is from the Hold Manuscript. We don't have any uh, attested evidence for it before that, 
It's possible that it's older than that, but we don't have any evidence for that. The only attested evidence for the Vegvisirs from the Hold Manuscript, which was an Icelandic book of magical rune saves, essentially. It was a, yeah, it was a book of magic rune spells. It's not clear to what extent it or pieces of it were actually traced farther back into Scandinavian history, or to what extent it was influenced by ceremonial magic, or uh, other kinds of magic that were being practiced at the time, or Christianity, other things that were being practiced in Iceland at the time. I like it a lot. Finn says, yeah, a lot of people use the Helm of Awe. Yeah, that's another one, which is similar to the Big Vizier, actually. It's a bunch of crossed bars centered around a single point, and it has, the ter- in the case of the Helm of Awe, a bunch of identical branches coming off from each stave. That's also, I believe, from the Hold Manuscript, but unlike the Vegbasir, we have references to the Helm of Awe in text. We don't have visualizations of the Helm of Awe, so we don't know what it looked like at the time it was being referred to, but we, gotcha. we have the Helm of Awe mentioned in actual mythology, okay. unlike the Vegbasir. So that one has, you know, maybe slightly more historicity. It's not clear. So what about the three interlocking horns? That is a stylization of the Vulcanite. Okay. Yeah, so you'll see the Valknut represented in a variety of ways. The traditional way, the way that is a reference to the way we see it drawn in ancient sources, is mm-hmm. the three interlocking triangles with sort of interlocking lines inside the triangles. Right. But people stylize the Valknut as just sort of three interlocking things all the time. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. So that's what I got. Awesome. I learned a ton. And... I came up with something new. Yeah, <laughs> you came up with an explanation for the Valknuts. <laughs> I I feel accomplished. You could uh, you could join academia with that. Yeah, no kidding. Write I'm, a scholarly. I've got that's what I'm doing. That's the next thing I'm doing. Is I'm writing a scholarly work. Actually, if anybody knows me, they know I don't write. <laughs> no, Car hates writing. Yeah. It says I've been asked to ask you about runes and rituals and good books to find info on those things. So I recommend Diana Paxson's work. I would ask for more book recommendations. Yeah, I recommend Diana Paxson's work. Uh, she has some books on runes and sort of heathenry in general. She has really, really good work, good scholarship. There's UPG in there as well, but uh, it's usually actually described as UPG or it's easily identifiable in some way. Yep. And she expands on a lot of the older work of, like, Edred Thorson and some of the sort of more the forebears of American heathenry. Edred Thorson has sort of a complicated history, so I prefer not to read his work directly, because he was in the AFA for a while, and, like, he left, but it's not clear, you know, how much of the ideal. So, like, it's a mess. I think Edward Thorson is probably fine as a person. I I don't think his um, views are super controversial, or bad. Right. But I just have some complicated feelings about him and his relationship to the AFA, so I prefer to read Diana Paxson's work, which draws on Edward Thorson's work um, and expands on and improves it, in my opinion. And we will see Diana Paxson yeah. at Convocation, and we're hoping to nail down an interview. Yes, that so, would be great. Yep. Our Darren asks, what are your thoughts on Raven Caldera's books? I actually really like Raven Caldera's work. I know a lot of heathens don't. Raven Caldera's work is somewhat controversial, I think, because there's a lot of, like, trans and BDSM stuff in it. Right. Which gets some people's feathers ruffled. But I think there's actually some some really good, interesting stuff in there. I don't use it all of, of Raven Caldera's work, but I think it's... It's a good starting place for that sort of where we need to make new pieces situation. Lynn Selke, on the subject of moving, 
Yes. Are there any specific gods or goddesses that are best to invoke or ask for blessings for the new space? I would definitely invoke Frigga because she is the the queen and housekeeper of the Norse pantheon. She is Odin's wife. I see her mostly as the queen, but Gwyn works with her a lot as the hearth goddess. So that would be my primary suggestion for uh, invoking her first in the home to sort of get the get the home in order. And then, of course, I would I would start off with. Obviously, offerings to the land spirits and the house spirits and to any local whites because those are the people you're going to be living with and dealing with most often. Yep. So set up good relationships with those Or if you're like us and you're moving into a house that was built in 1890, you get a lot of stuff. Yes. We're moving to an old house. Yeah. Uh, The basement of this house feels old. That's because it's all stone. Yeah, it's all, the, the basement is all made out of stone. Yeah, so we're gonna, um, I'm probably gonna end up doing offerings to the housewife there in the basement, because it's the oldest part of the house. Yep. Alright. Thank you guys for listening to Just Odin I. Yeah, no going today. So, yeah, thank you. You can find us on everywhere. Yeah. And if Long you stuff. don't, if you don't know where it, everywhere is, there's this thing called Google and you just type in the number three, Pagans and a Cat. You can even spell out the number three, Pagans and a Cat. And it'll and get you there. Holy crap, it all shows up there, too. Uh, you can also find us at the number three, Pagans and a Cat dot com. And uh, Pagan's blog. Yep, a blog. Um, we have a YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel. We have TikTok. We have TikTok. TikTok. I have TikTok. We have a Facebook group that I'm never in. And we have a Discord group that I am somewhat better at keeping track of. We are on Facebook. We have a page and a group. Yep. We have Twitter. Yep. Which I also have no relationship to. <laughs> I don't have a Twitter. Yep, I've got it all. I'm, I'm not social media savvy. I know what all the things are. I just don't use any of them. Yeah. All right. So that's it for us. Yep. We're going to turn off the mic now. Yep. Goodbye. Maybe. Goodbye, friends. Bye. You've been listening to Three Pagans and a Cat. Find out more information at www.threepagansandacat.com.